you know, if we think about uh, stereotypes, like stereotypes of different uh, states in the U.S., sometimes we, you know, we talk about other states or we, and, uh, and we kind of stereotype them. And so I want to just read, this is kind of interactive, okay? So I want to read like a, a short like, uh, uh, description, and then you tell me what state I'm talking about, okay? And so a state full of bronzed beach bums, models, and left-wing activists. We had it over here. California. I didn't even get it all out. Okay. Full of people who love to snow ski, smoke pot, and drink Coors Light. Colorado. Okay. Known for barbecue, blues, and country music. Of course. Tennessee. Drivers are rude. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Okay. uh, Drivers are rude and in a hurry, and there's a city there that never sleeps. New York. All right. Uh, Populated by retirees who play golf and shuffleboard. There's also a lot of gators. Florida. Everything is bigger here, including... Okay. Um, So there's a lot of things that are more deeply true about each of these states. But those stereotypes are kind of things that maybe have been uh, observed in a few people and then uh, then kind of generalized. Um, But going deeper than a stereotype would be a cultural characteristic. And so a cultural characteristic is something that is actually measurable. It's actually going to be a trait that's backed up by statistical data. For example, if somebody drives through Sweetwater uh, on a Friday in the fall, they might, they might see a few people wearing red shirts, and they might have this stereotype or this generalization that people wear red in Sweetwater uh, on Fridays in the fall. Well, if they go and they actually count the number of Sweetwater and like, uh, people in Sweetwater and do some uh, statistical data, they would come to the, the, reality, the realization that that actually isn't just a stereotype, it is a, cultural, uh, it is a cultural quality of Sweetwater, that by and large, on Fridays in the fall, people wear red. And so we want, there's, when we talk about the church, there's a lot of stereotypes we could talk about, right? Uh, good and bad. There's good and bad stereotypes or generalizations about the church. But today, I want to talk about some uh, cultural qualifications or some cultural qualities that come from the scripture, that these are cultural qualities of a healthy church. These are cultural qualities of a New Testament church. And we're going to focus specifically on that cultural quality of Christ-centered relationship. All right. And so um, I want to just begin, uh, begin in verse 42, Acts 2, 42. This is describing this early church made up of the, the, the disciples, and then there's this 3,000 that have responded to Peter's uh, uh, Pentecost sermon. So early in Acts chapter 2, we saw the Holy Spirit poured out on the disciples. Uh, we saw Peter get up and explain and give a sermon about how this Holy Spirit being poured out, this is fulfillment to all the hopes and dreams and promises of the Old Testament. And now we see at the end of Acts chapter 2 what the Spirit-filled, Spirit-led community looks like in practice. So 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayer, or the prayers. Now that gives four cultural qualifications, four uh, practices that the early church and really any healthy church is going to be known by. They were known by um, their commitment to the apostles' teaching. That's biblical. That's the biblical foundation of the early church. Uh, they were committed to, they were devoted to biblical teaching. Specifically, they were committed to, devoted to the gospel proclamation, 
that Jesus Christ is king. Last week, we started talking about the core values of Trinity. And, and last, uh, last week, we, we talked about the core values of Trinity. And, and the first core value we talked about is gospel. That, that at the center of everything we do is this message and this reality that Jesus is the king. We want to make that known. And we want to go deeper in that reality in our own lives and introduce other people to that reality. We, we can measure anything we do by, is this gospel-centered? Is this about the kingship of Jesus? Is this about making uh, the kingship of Jesus known? Okay, And that comes right here from, from, from Acts 2. They're known by the apostles' teaching. And then the second core value we'll talk about today is relationship. We didn't dream this stuff up. This comes right from the pages of Scripture. And the people are devoted to the apostles' teaching, biblical truth, specifically the gospel, and they're devoted to the fellowship. That word fellowship is a word we, we use a lot, usually involving donuts, right? And donuts are a wonderful component of fellowship, right? Um, but, but what makes fellowship, or that Greek word koinonia, uh, what makes it work is it's about share, what, what it means is about a sharing of relationship or sharing in life. And two Christians can have fellowship with each other because they share Christ together. There's this common unity of Christ that we share between one another. We share our lives, we share Christ, uh, we can share relationship. That's what this idea of fellowship is about. But they're devoted to the teaching, they're devoted to fellowship, they're devoted to breaking bread, which is, um, some say this was a meal they would have together, some say this is communion, but a lot of people believe that this was a meal that at the end of it, was communion. It's kind of a combination. They're, they're, they're committed to practicing communion and they're committed to sharing a meal together. You know, there's not much that kind of can help bind people together like gathering around a table, whether it's at uh, Whataburger or whether it's at uh, a, a table here in the, in, the, in the Family Life Center or whether it's in somebody's home. There's something about gathering around a table and breaking bread together. Um, and in every time we break bread together, every time we have a meal, we're being reminded that we need uh, to eat, that we are dependent. And every time we have a meal can be an opportunity to, to remind ourselves that we are dependent on Christ, the bread of life. And they're committed to the prayers. They're committed to prayer. There's, this early church is characterized by prayer. They're, they're characterized by devotion to the gospel. They're pr- characterized by devotion to prayer, devotion to uh, relationship, fellowship, and devotion to uh, breaking bread together and remembering Christ. And, and, and those are going to be qualifications or qualities that describe the culture of any biblical, healthy church. And the passage goes on, um, verse 43, awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Incredible things were happen, happening that could only be des- described by God must be doing something here. And all who believe were together. There's that word together again. They're together and they hold all things in common. Their fellowship together results in their sharing life together, even sharing possessions together. They're doing life together. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. There's this incredible generosity that, uh, that uh, describes this early life of the church and any healthy church. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes they received their food with glad and generous hearts. And so there's this picture here that, that they gather in a big group 
in the temple, and then they gathered in small groups in homes. So when we went to this model a few years ago, it wasn't because we just thought, hey, this is a really smart, newfangled idea. It's because it comes right from the book of Acts. There's this model biblically in the New Testament of gathering together in this large group and then breaking up in smaller groups, sharing a meal together and actually getting to know one another, actually doing life together. Because even though we're even though our church is not a huge church, we're too big for all of us to know each other. We're too big for all of us to be deeply doing life together. So as we keep growing bigger, we keep growing smaller too and having small groups, life groups to connect to. All right, so one of the, just the things that's so remarkable and incredible about the early church is that they do function together as a single family. They share their life. They gather as big groups, gather as small groups, um, worship together, share meals together, share life together. There's this commitment to God's word. There's this commitment to Christ-centered relationship. And so today, again, as the arms demonstrate behind me, we're talking about reaching out to one another in relationship. And this comes right from this passage in Acts. Um, early on in my walk with Christ, most of you know that I, uh, I, I got in a lot of trouble as a teenager, was, uh, you know, was, had a very traumatic uh, traumatized my, my mother's here, my sweet mother's here, traumatized my family a lot, disappointed a lot of people, hurt a lot of people. And so I ended up, that's the, that's the situation, kind of like Cade was sharing, you know, broke my ankle and that shaped my life. Well, well me being a juvenile delinquent really shaved, my, uh, saved, uh, saved, shaped my life. And, and it was there that the body of Christ reached out to me. It was there that Christ got a hold of me. And so I went and, and was locked up for a year, and then, and then got plugged back into our, our country church. And I was doing college classes, but I wasn't, there was a few months I wasn't living on campus yet. I was 17, almost 18, not living on campus yet. And I was kind of, you know, I had, uh, had to break ties with a lot of previous relationships. And I had burned a lot of bridges with other relationships. And I felt very, very, very lonely. There was just this deep loneliness. Even though I loved Christ, even though I knew Christ, there was just this deep, and even though I had great people around me, there was just a deep, it was just a very deeply lonely time. And so in our church, which was a small church, wonderful church, but there were people younger than me, and there were people a lot older than me, but there really weren't a lot of like college students and people in our church probably can relate to that struggle as well. Um, and, and, and sometimes as great as it was, and as much as people poured into me, you know, and I was serving and I was helping out with the youth in our church. Um, but, but I was lonely and, uh, and it was, it was a lonely season in my life. And sometimes I would wonder why did God, why'd you put me in this specific community of people? Why'd you put me with these people? And maybe if you're in a group here or even in our church here, maybe you've wondered like, why am I with these people? Uh, why God, why in your sovereignty, if you can do anything, why did you put me with this specific group of people? Um, I, I thought maybe surely there's churches out there filled with 18 year old ex-cons that I would just connect really instantly too, and they'd be just like we would be so compatible and just alike and all these things. We have so much in common. But in fact, what I had in common with our church family was Christ. I had Christ in common with them. And that wasn't the community maybe that I would have chosen, but it was the community that God chose for me. And it was exactly the community that I needed in order to grow. And God, through that community, grew me. And even through the loneliness of that season, God grew me. So all that being said, cultivating true community can be hard. 
And sometimes it's hard because we're so different that we feel like we can't relate. And sometimes developing true community is so it's hard because we're so similar or so alike, we can't uh, really see each other that well. But the biggest reason community is hard, anybody know the biggest reason community is hard? Why is marriage hard? Why is friendship hard? Why is doing life together as a group hard? Why is parenting hard? Because we're sinners. Doing life together is hard fundamentally because we're sinners. Being a parent, it's a big sinner, sinner raising little sinners. I mean, what could possibly go wrong, right? Marriage, two sinners trying to come together and to have and to hold from this day forward until death do us part. I mean, what's the worst that could happen? And you get a bunch of sinners together in a church or in a small group or a life group together, and there's going to be conflict, there's going to be awkwardness, there's going to be struggles. What makes community difficult is we sin. And then part of the nature of sin is that I filter everything through this lens of self. How does this relationship benefit me? Do you struggle with that? Okay, Uh, uh, Just filtering things through this lens of self. I'm great with a church as long as this guy has benefited. I'll hang out with this group as long as it's great for me. We familiar with this struggle? But as soon as it gets hard, I remember um, also as I, when I was a teenager, um, not recommending this necessarily, but I had my old blue pickup, my old blue Ford truck um, that I still have now. And um, this is 20-something years ago. The gas gauge didn't work uh, on it then. And so sometimes I would forget how many miles I'd gone and I would run out of gas and get stranded. Still haven't fixed it. Still the same, same now. And, and one time I was driving to school. There was a hitchhiker. You know, I said, Pick him up, you know, and I, uh, I wheels over there, pick, picked him up, and we're driving, we're talking, and um, I, I run out of gas. I start to sputter, and, and, and I pull over, and, and I'm dead. And I said, no big deal. Uh, I'm, I've got a gas uh, can back here. We'll walk, and I look up. I got the gas can from the back of the truck. Dude's already gone. Like, he's already waved down a trucker, and he's gotten in, and he left me in the dust. Like, he was along for the ride as long as things were going good. Does that sound like relationships you know? I'm, I'm here as long as things are going great, as long as things are going my way, I'll stay in this church, I'll stay in this class, I'll stay in this, uh, I'll stay in this life group, I'll stay in this marriage, I'll stay in this friendship, but don't you dare disappoint me. That's a hitchhiker mentality. No offense to hitchhikers. Um, the nature of sin is that I filter everything through this lens of how is it going to benefit me? And that's what makes community really hard. Because Christian community isn't just about me, is it? Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, The person who loves their dream of community will destroy community. Hear that. The person who loves their dream of community will destroy community. But the person who loves those around them, hey man, but the person who loves those around them will create community. What does that mean? Sometimes we get so attached to our vision of how community should look that if it doesn't look that way and if it disappoints us, we destroy it. If I'm in love with my vision or my dream of community, I'm going to destroy community. But if I will love people, if I will just love actual people, I'm going to create community. And, and we each have this choice of, am I, am I going to be a destroyer of community because I can't let go of my vision of it? Or am I going to be a creator of community simply because I love the people God puts in front of me? Um, so we weren't designed to do life alone. That's what our relationship core value is about. We were not designed to do life alone. And thankfully, we don't have to do life alone. 
So community is one of God's greatest gifts to us, going all the way back to Genesis. He puts us in community with each other, but sin and our rebellion broke that community, and immediately we hid from each other, and we hid from God. And, uh, and, and, and we continue to try to do that, even as Christians, uh, continue to try to hide from each other, and we avoid deep relationships. But this early church, we see them characterized as they're devoted to the apostles' teaching, and to fellowship, and to prayer, and to the breaking of bread. That word devoted literally means to occupy oneself diligently with something. Devoted means to occupy oneself diligently with something or to pay persistent attention to. What are you occupied diligently with? What are you paying persistent attention to? And are you paying attention to what you're paying attention to? You know, some people say that people just aren't as committed anymore. I don't, and I've said that, but I don't know that that's true. I think we're as committed and we're as devoted as we've ever been. It's just a question of what am I devoted to? What am I committed to? Everybody is devoted to something. Every church, every group is devoted to something. The early church is devoted to the gospel teaching. The early church is devoted to Christ-centered relationships. So how would this sentence describe you? Tamra devoted herself to blank. Donna devotes herself to blank. Will devotes himself to blank. Trinity devotes themselves to blank. How would that describe you? What are you devoted to? The early church devoted to the gospel, devoted to relationship, Christ-centered relationship. So we just really want to plug and encourage you to get connected into a life group. Trinity has, we've, because we value relationships, we've really um, shaped a lot of what we do around life groups. It's not just that I didn't want to do a midweek Bible study or something like that. It's that we see from Scripture there's this value in people getting together and not just sitting in a row, but sitting in a circle. There's a value to people getting together and doing life together. And there's this value in doing this as the big group. And there's value in doing the smaller group together. And so at the end, I want to really encourage you to, um, to jump into a group or to start a group, and I'd love to help you do that. But we have groups meeting most nights of the week and several mornings, and that's all coming right here from Acts. And maybe you've been in a group and you've said, you know what, it really didn't do it for me. Or maybe you've been in a group that, that wasn't great. I mean, we're not nailing this. We're not experts at this. Um, make it better. Don't have a consumer mentality, have an ownership mentality of how can I help these relationships grow and go deeper. So today I want to give you a grid to help you evaluate relationships, whether it's a life group, whether it's a, a Bible study, whether it's um, a marriage, whether it's a dating relationship, whether it's a friendship. I just want to give you a grid to kind of evaluate healthy and unhealthy relationships. Is that all right? We got time for that? Okay. And so just want to talk about unhealthy community. And ultimately, my goal for you, and most importantly, God's goal for you, isn't just that you would be an evaluator of relationships, but that you would be an investor in relationships. Uh, we want to be able to evaluate relationships, but ultimately, God's called you to be an, someone who invests in relationships, isn't just a casual evaluator, okay? Um, but unhealthy community is characterized by several things. I'm just going to name four. First, Unhealthy community is characterized by condemnation. Uh, there is a, individuals can be very condemning. Groups can take on a culture. 
and even churches, even communities, even, even entire cultures can take on this tone of condemnation. And condemnation is a twist of something that's biblical and needed, which is true accountability. Condemnation twists that. And a condemning person uses other people's failings, other people's weaknesses, other people's sin as a weapon and as ammunition to keep that person down and to keep themselves propped up. We ever know somebody like this that uses other sin, other failings kind of as tools and a weapon to keep them down? Um, one time I worked in a very controlling environment. And it was a quote-unquote Christian environment, but very, very controlling very unhealthy. And there was this premium placed on confessing sin and sharing your struggles. But then when you would do that, they would be used against you um, and held over your head in very unhealthy ways. Um, it was a very shaming environment. Some of us in this room, we're familiar with shaming environments where if we admit our weakness, it's used as ammunition against us. Maybe that was your family. Maybe that's been some of your church experience. Bonhoeffer, again, he said, if my sinfulness appears to me to be in any way smaller or less detestable in comparison with the sins of others, I'm still not recognizing my sinfulness at all. What fuels condemnation is this, part of what fuels condemnation is this sense of, I don't think my sin is as ugly as your sin. And as long as I don't see the ugly of my sin, I'm going to feel this need to set myself up as better than you, or I'm going to condemn you. But when I see the ugliness of my sin, when I see like the Apostle Paul, I view myself as the chief sinner, I'm not going to have condemnation for you. I'm going to have compassion for you. Unhealthy community, though, is characterized by condemnation. Uh, the other extreme, though, unhealthy community is also can be characterized by a lack of correction. By no correction and no accountability at all. And that's the other extreme. And, I, and I've been on that extreme too. And, and I've been guilty of maybe somebody confessing struggles to me or confessing sins to me. And, and then because I don't want to be condemning or I don't want to hold it over their head, I don't follow up with that person and say, hey, how are you doing with this struggle? How are you doing with this? And we just don't acknowledge it. And then that person feels like they're just twisting in the wind and nobody cares about them. And, and, and they're just kind of left to do it on their own. They just laid this stuff out and then we don't follow up. And they say, well, man, I just laid that out there and nobody cared enough to follow up. And so, no, we don't want to fail in our community by, by being condemning. But we also can't take the extreme of no accountability or no correct correction whatsoever. That just leaves people stuck in their sin and alone. Another characteristic of unhealthy, uh, unhealthy community is codependence. We're familiar with this idea of codependence. Codependence is that determination to meeting all of a dysfunctional person's needs and finding your happiness in fulfilling those needs. And so you see this a lot of time with people who are um, in relationship with, with addicts or married to an addict or in family relationship with addicts. And, 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 and they present that the addict is the only person that has the problem but actually, I've built my life around meeting the needs of this addict. I'm addicted to being needed by the addict, and that's a codependent relationship. And you have not been called to codependence. You've been called to Christ-likeness, and there's a difference. Recently, I heard the story of The Giving Tree by Shel Silverstein. It's a very loved story, but I heard it told in a different way. Often, the, and it's, it's difficult to know how Silverstein intends the story to be told, but often we're kind of understood that the tree is really great for giving itself away so much. And often in Christian circles, selflessness 
is described in such a way that, you know, you just give no... Even if the person's unhealthy and even if they're going to misuse what you give them, just go ahead and keep doing it because that's the Christian thing to do. And that's a twist. That's a twist on what the gospel actually is. In the giving tree, if you remember it, um, there's a boy who comes to the forest and he finds a tree and this tree just so bad wants to make the boy happy. And so the boy swings in, in the tree's branches and then later the boy comes back and the boy wants money. The tree says, I don't have any money, but you can take my apples and sell my apples. So the boy does that. And then the boy comes back and he wants to build a house for his family. And the tree says, well, I don't have a house, but you can take my branches. So the boy cuts down all the tree's branches and builds a house out of it. Then later the boy comes back and he's disappointed and he's discouraged and he wants to sail around, he wants to sail away. So the tree says, well, you can have my trunk and make a boat out of that. I wish I could, if that'll make you happy, do that. And, and finally, at the end of the story, the, the boy who's now an old man comes and his teeth are, are, he can't eat apples anyway. He's too weak to build a house. And the tree says, all I have left is a stump. And so the story ends with this old man who's still called a boy because he's never grown, he's never matured, with his rear end right in the face of the tree, sitting on the stump. That's how the story ends. That's codependence. That's a codependent relationship. The tree has given and given and given, but the other has never changed, has never been transformed. And so sometimes in Christian community, we think that our job is to try to meet our own needs by fixing other people, and it becomes very me-centered. The tree in the story was part of the problem. The tree was seeking its happiness and its fulfillment by meeting the needs of the boy who never grew up. And there's a lot of pastors, there's a lot of leaders, there's a lot of Christians who are trying to fill our own needs by meeting the needs of others, and that becomes me-centered ministry rather than Christ-centered ministry. And so there's times that you're going to want to find me, and you're not going to. There's times somebody in your group might need you, and they may not be. There were times Jesus couldn't be accessed, okay? And so uh, being Christ-centered, being servants, uh, loving one another doesn't mean we're in a codependent relationship. Um, we're in a Christ-centered relationship. And I'm going to point the person to Jesus, not to Matt. That, there's a difference, right? We're called to point people to Jesus, not to ourselves. And finally, unhealthy community is cold. There's a lack of empathy. Have you ever shared something in a group setting or to a friend or to a Christian friend? And, and, uh, and you shared something that was, it was tough, it was hurtful, and you just you threw the ball, and the ball just kind of bounced off of them and rolled down, and you got nothing back except kind of a... Well, hey, man, the weather's really crazy lately, isn't it? There's just like no empathy whatsoever. That kind of coldness, that's unhealthy in community. When, our, when we're, we share our heart and it's met with nothing, we have an empathy crisis in our culture. We have an empathy crisis among Christians. And true biblical community, though, develops empathy. Develops empathy. And so unhealthy community is condemning, there's no correction, or there's no correction, or it's codependent, or it's cold. There's a lot of other things we could mention, but those are four. And maybe if those characterize our relationships, there's repentance on our part, and it needs to happen. What does healthy community look like? We can find our, our examples of healthy community or descriptions of health, healthy community in the New Testament all the way through a lot of 
passages in the New Testament called the one another's of Scripture. And if you'll just look up that word one another, it's amazing how we're called to love one another, serve one another, encourage one another, be humble, pray for one another, confess our sins to one another. And those are all, all those one another's passages in the New Testament are great pictures of what healthy community looks like. I want to name four. Healthy community is characterized by affirmation. Affirmation. In Romans 12, 9 and 10, that exact word affirmation isn't used, but I think the idea is there, and it's, and it's throughout the New Testament. Romans 12, 9 and 10, let love be genuine, hate what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Um, we, m- most people are starved for affirmation, and we look for it in friendships. We look for it in the opposite sex. We look for it all over the place. We look for it from our parents. And humans, there is a way that we can biblically and truly bless each other and affirm each other. But our ultimate affirmation can only come from God. When He says, you are my child. That's where, and if we don't find it there, all the affirmation in the world, other places, isn't going isn't to help. It leaks But yeah, we need our affirmation from God, but God's also built us as humans to affirm one another. And we're not really good at it. Isn't it easier for most of us to criticize what we're doing wrong than to affirm? And so some of us are already nervous about this, and affirmation doesn't come naturally to me. What comes naturally to me is, well, that's pretty good, but let me tell you how you could have done it better. Where... Um, the father says to Jesus, you're my son in whom I am well pleased. Look into that affirmation. What about correction? What about correction? Yes, correction is only going to be heard if the relationship is characterized primarily by affirmation. And so if I want to affirm will, I'm not going to say, hey, I like your shirt, like your uh, watch, like your pants. You're an idiot, okay? That's not what we're going for. That's not godly affirmation. That's not godly correction. Affirmation isn't, well, you look really nice today. I mean, that's kind of affirmation, but what is true, like Christ-centered affirmation is like, hey, Dylan, when I saw you taking out the trash and nobody even asked you, man, that was demonstrating the servant heart of Jesus Christ. I saw Jesus in you. Man, Will, when I saw you last week picking up trash out there, not that I have a fixation on trash, but when I saw, uh, I just really want the trash to be picked up, people. When when I saw you picking up trash, man, what what an example. It's like Jesus washing feet, you know? Um, And and the list could go, hey, when I saw you forgive your husband, man, what an incredible picture of Christ's mercy and grace. And so affirmation is a way of saying, here's how I see God at work in you. If we want our groups to be more healthy, maybe that's just a practice to embody. Our friendships, our marriages, our parenting. Just be intentional to to notice, here's how I see God working in you. There may be ten things that need to change. Affirm ten great things. And then maybe work on one corrective thing at a time. Our relationships need to be much more characterized by affirmation than correction. Or the correction won't even get heard. And if I find the need to constantly correct and, I, and I, I have a struggle to affirm, that says more about my relationship with God than it does about anybody else in my life. 
Um, affirmation. Uh, healthy community is characterized by confession. James 5, 16, confess your sins to one another. And then what does it say? And pray for one another. When somebody confesses their sin, the most important thing they need from you isn't advice. What they need from you more than anything else is prayer. Can I pray with you? Can I pray that God will release His healing power in your life, His restoring power in your life as you've confessed this, as you've laid your burden down a healthy marriage healthy parenting healthy friendship a healthy life group is going to be characterized by confession of sin and prayer for those who confessed and 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 you know what you might do when somebody confesses their sin to you is this is what priesthood of all believers means it's not that i don't need a priest it's i need so many priests that god's made all of us one so we can all be priests to each other and so when somebody confesses sin to you a great practice for you in humility is to say you know what here's something i struggle with will you pray for me too and as we practice affirmation and as we practice confession uh trust is developed uh Healthy community is characterized by affirmation, by confession, and by trust. Affirmation, confession, prayer, loving correction, over time, that develops trust. There's not going to be a healthy marriage or a healthy friendship, a healthy parenting relationship, a healthy Bible study group, a healthy life group, if there's not trust. And this is how it's developed. And also how it's developed is a lot of time. That's another T word, a lot of time. And then finally, healthy community, this isn't an exhaustive list, but a fourth, healthy community is characterized by service. Um, we read John 13 earlier. Serve one another. Wash each other's feet. Um, serve one another. Wash one another's feet. You know, I had, a few years ago, um, I was with a nonprofit organization and I had what I felt to be great Christian community there that was so superior to the local church. And we were involved in a local church, but I was uh, just kind of surface level involved. Sonda was all in. She was playing piano three services every Sunday. She was in a group together. And, uh, but I, I felt like those relational needs were being met through this Christian nonprofit I was in. And then that thing blew up that I was in, and it got ugly. And that church that I had kind of looked down my nose at, those were the people that came, Sonda's group that she had built relationships with, those were the people that came, and when I was out working in, the, uh, in, in industrial construction in another state, that group came and mowed our yard. That group brought meals to Sonda. That group came and packed up a U-Haul, and, and one of them drove it from Alabama to Texas to Sweetwater. Um, Christian community serves each other takes each other meals, uh, helps each other move. Christian community serves not just one another, but serves others, outsiders, characterized by generosity. And the result of all this, and that spells acts if you didn't notice, uh, the result, of, I love, hey, my love of acronyms has been increased. I'm never going to stop with them, okay? Um, the result of all that there in Acts 2 is that people were being added to their number daily. People wanted this kind of relationship. People wanted this kind of community. And so you want to be a great group member, great co-worker, a great Bible study member. You want to be a great uh, life group participant, be a friend. Just think about what would a good friend do in this situation. It's really not hard. Or it might be hard, but it's not complicated. 
Godly friendship is about stirring one another up to renounce sin. Godly friendship is about stirring one another up to revere Christ and to come to resemble Christ. Renounce sin, revere, and resemble Christ. So last thing, get connected. There's a, there's a, a slide. If you'll go to our website, trinitysweetwater.com, there's a, kind of a rotator that'll go through. The second or third one is that. It says, get connected. And you can click on that and fill out a survey. And then that'll come to us, and we can help you get connected to some kind of Christian community, some kind of group here. We would love to see that happen.